Hi, this is Ada. I wanted to give a quick trigger warning at the beginning of this episode as there is some discussion about suicide ideation and attempting suicide. So if this is a topic that is triggering to you, please know that ahead of time and take care of your mental health. Thanks so much. Good morning. Welcome to the Dissident Daughters podcast. This is Ada and I am excited to be here today. Today's going to be a little bit different. I decided to do an episode or two, actually I'll probably end up doing two, of just basically the stories of my life. We're going to start today at the beginning. (laughs) I know I've shared, you know, kind of an overview and, and some little stories here and there about my life, but um, we're going to go back to the beginning and kind of go through some of the nitty gritty details and, and uh, have some, I think some interesting stories that might appeal to my listeners that they might be interested in um, knowing some more about me. I'll probably do kind of everything up until I got married um, today. And then, and then I'll do another episode of like married life, parenting life, kids, all of that. And then through to my faith crisis and, and to the present day. So here we go. I was the fourth daughter born to my parents. I was born in 1976. Um, I was born in Denver, but my family only lived there for a short time and I don't remember it. So in my first six years of life, I think I'm pretty sure I lived in six different homes I couldn't remember for sure, but I think six and in three different states. My family was super poor at this time. My dad had this, you know, super entrepreneurial spirit and he wanted to be his own boss. I don't know if he ever actually had any good ideas, but he sure tried. And he was always, you know, wanting to either like come up with the next big idea and make it big, make a million dollars. And anyways, he tried and he failed and he failed and he failed. He was so determined, so much so that he put my family through a lot of poverty in those early days. And I wasn't fully aware of how poor we were, but I later learned about, you know, multiple bankruptcies, foreclosures and such. I know we received a lot of help from ward members for things like medical bills, for Uh, I had an older sister who was severely handicapped, you know, things anyways, I'll get into some of those details, but just over those years, for some reason, (laughs) people were so kind and generous to us. um, And we got taken care of constantly by people in the church, but never by the church itself. As far as I'm aware, as far as I'm aware, I guess I should say, because there could have been times where the church stepped in, but I, I don't ever know about those times. So I mostly wore hand-me-downs. I mean, being the fourth daughter, of course, that's, you know, that's just what happens. I got the clothes after my sisters wore them. And my mom also sewed, you know, simple things like pajamas and sometimes dresses, but she wasn't a super skilled seamstress. So she just did, you know, basic things uh, to try and save money. And my mom also cut all of our hair herself because we couldn't, she couldn't afford to pay for professional haircuts. Um, I remember the first time I got a haircut from somebody else was when I was six years old. We went to the local beauty college where you could get really discounted haircuts, right? 
And my mom told the girls at the college just to cut all of our hair in those super short little bob cuts so that they were really easy to style. And because by this time, my mom had seven girls and one boy. Okay. Of course, her seventh girl was a brand new newborn, so she wasn't getting a haircut. But needless to say, my mom had a lot of girls hair to take care of. And so she told them all she told them to give us all really short haircuts. I remember being so embarrassed and humiliated by this haircut. I it's the first time that I was like super self-conscious about the way I looked and I just wanted to crawl in a hole and die. I I looked like a boy and there was nothing I could do to make myself look more like a girl. I remember going to school and this was back in the day when you lined up in separate boy and girl lines like to go to the library or to go to lunch or whatever. And I was lined up in the girls line and one of the boys turned to me and said, hey, you're in the girls line. And I really don't think he was trying to be mean to me. He genuinely thought that I was a boy and that I had made a mistake and I was in the wrong line. Um, I was so embarrassed, so incredibly embarrassed. I felt like I had ugly clothes. I felt like I was just ugly and frumpy and looked like a boy. There were these two really beautiful, I thought, twin girls that lived down the street from me. And they were nice to me. And they were so much prettier. And they always had cute, like really frilly dresses. And, you know, kind of, I don't know, what I would think were like expensive toys and clothes and things. And I definitely internalized that they were way better than me. Like, like out of my league. Like they were too cool to play with me but they were always really nice to me. They were never mean. It was this time in my life when I remember having my very first crush and it was on a boy named David. He lived like three houses down from me. I was, I think I was right about six years old. I thought he was the cutest boy I had ever seen, but I also knew that he would never even notice me or give me the time of day. I really remember feeling kind of that same thing that I felt with those cute girls was like, they're way too good for me. I'm not good enough um, for anyone to care about me or, you know, whatever. And I remember in this particular house, we lived on a, we lived on a hill. And um, this was when we, we got to Utah. We were in Utah by this time. And I felt like, and I'm pretty sure I was only six, but I felt like I was so dumb that I didn't know how to ride a bike yet, a two-wheeler without training wheels, right? And I thought every single other kid my age can ride a two-wheeler but me. And so I was determined to try and learn. But my parents, I had gotten a hand-me-down bike, you know, from my older sisters. And the bike was way too big for me. I mean, I clearly should not have been on a bike that big because I could not touch the ground if I was up on the seat. But I did love this bike. It was It had one of those big banana seats. You know, we call them a banana seat. I'm not sure why, but, and it was rainbow. The whole bike was rainbow, but the seat especially just had this, you know, complete rainbow on the seat. And I thought it was the cutest thing ever. So I don't remember like anyone helping me learn to ride a bike. Um, That memory could be wrong, but it feels like in my memory that I did it all by myself. But I remember one of the first times taking off and I was up and I was riding, 
but I was a little wobbly and I started going down that hill that we lived on and I started getting faster and faster and I was terrified. I don't know why, because I knew how to put on the brakes, but it's like I just panicked and I didn't know what to do. And there were cars parked. I was in the road. Okay. First of all, I was in the road and it wasn't a busy road. It was a neighborhood road, you know, but there were cars parked on the side of this road. And for some reason, they just, they panicked me. I felt like, like a deer in the headlights, you know, that's like a real thing. Like you just like freeze and you don't know what to do or how to act or whatever. And I just slammed into one of those cars. totally ran into the car, fell over, like made such an idiot of myself, felt so stupid. I was like looking around to see if anybody saw me. I probably scratched up that car. I don't even know. I don't know whose car it was. I don't remember even thinking about the fact that I might have done damage to the car. I just got up and walked my bike home like as fast as I could before anybody noticed, you know, and I didn't tell anybody about that because I was so embarrassed and I thought I'd be in trouble, just all these things. But I have like this really vivid memory of that. So this was also back in the days when um, free, free school lunch required you to go through a different line. So if you were, if you were approved for free lunch at school, you had to go through this different line so that everyone knew that you were one of the poor kids. And of course that was me. I, we got free school lunch because we had so many kids and my dad didn't make any money. So, I mean, he never had a steady job. As far as I remember, he really didn't. So this was another like point of shame and humiliation for me. I hated it so much. So maybe like a year after this, somewhere about we had moved again and I have this vivid memory of Christmas and I was I think I was seven and Cabbage Patch dolls were all the rage I had this what I would call rich friend down the street I don't know if she was actually rich but you know when you're a kid she had several Cabbage Patch dolls and she also had several sisters like I did and they all had them they all had several Cabbage Patch dolls I wanted one so bad and I asked for one for Christmas and I was very specific about what I wanted. Like I wanted to have one that had red hair and green eyes. Um, Even from that age, I, there was something like where I didn't want to be like every other girl. I wanted to, I don't know. I just felt like it was cool to be different, even though that doesn't really make sense with the way I felt with like, you know, having the short boyish hair, because I remember at that time just really wanting to look like all the other girls. So I don't know, but I definitely like, I purposefully chose blue as my favorite color because I didn't want to be like every other girl. I feel like at that time it was like, it wasn't a good thing to be a girly girl, like in my mind, at least. I don't know if that was like societal or not, but like, I wanted to be a tough girl. I wanted to be kind of a tomboy. I wanted to be a cool girl. I wanted to be you know, whatever. And so there were certain things that like, I really liked to have different. I did not want a cabbage patch doll with blonde hair and blue eyes. I purposefully wanted a redhead with green eyes. So nevertheless, I asked for this cabbage patch doll. And of course my parents couldn't afford to buy me a cabbage patch doll um, or any of my sisters. Right. So I think several of my sisters also asked for them. My mom 
ended up homemaking us Cabbage Patch dolls for Christmas. She, bless her heart, <laughs> she, I don't know, she found somebody who could like teach her how to make Cabbage Patch dolls. And I mean, I was, I was grateful. I never showed my disappointment, of course. Um, I always was very in tune with what was expected of me. And it was expected that I would be grateful and I would say thank you and all of these things. But I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed to show my friends. Like, I didn't tell my friends that I got a Cabbage Patch doll for Christmas. I wasn't going to ever take my Cabbage Patch doll to my friend's house and play it with it there. I was never going to do that. So I was embarrassed and I never really thought about how much work that was for my mom and how hard it must have been for her to, number one, like not be able to afford to get us what we wanted. And also just the actual time and work that went into making several Cabbage Patch dolls. I don't, I don't remember for sure how many of my sisters got them. At least three of us, maybe there were four, I'm not sure. So during that year, like so many shitty things happened for whatever reason. Um, I remember listening to a conversation between my parents where my dad was telling my mom that it was time for him to quit his job and go into business for himself again. And I know he had done this multiple times before. And I don't know, he had some great idea. I don't know what it was, but he was like, it's time for me to quit, you know, and she could tell that something was off. So she said, you already quit your job, didn't you? And he kind of hummed and hawed and stammered and eventually admitted that he had already quit his job. So right around that time, my severely handicapped sister started complaining about headaches. So let me tell you, let me back up and tell you a little bit about her. When she was born, they thought she was perfectly normal. There was nothing off about the way she looked or the way she acted or, you know, anything. She was perfectly normal baby girl. She was the second child to my parents. Okay. So, um, she was perfectly normal around nine or 10 months. She had a seizure just randomly one day started having a seizure and they, you know, of course that was terrifying and they didn't know what they were doing and they didn't know what was happening and, and all of this stuff. So I, you know, I wasn't born at this time. I don't know everything that went into it, but, uh, you know, it took some time maybe six to 12 months or something like this for them to kind of figure out what was going on. But essentially she was diagnosed with something called tuberous sclerosis. And even I'm a little bit ashamed to say that I don't really even know that much about that disease other than um, it, it causes, it attacks all the major organs of your body in ways that like essentially she would get, she would get growths on different parts of, so like it, it attacked her brain first and what, and that's why she started having seizures and she essentially just kind of stayed about the, she was like cognitively and intellectually about the age of a two-year-old essentially her whole life. So she kind of slowly like had, she had issues with lots of different things, but um, around this time, she was about between 12 and 14 years old. I'm not really sure, but, but again, she was only at about a two-year-old's level. So she couldn't communicate super well. 
she could say words, but there was no, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but it's not like you could have a conversation with her. She could say words and she could communicate some things, but so she started complaining and she would like kind of hit her hand against her head and say, ow and ouch. And she would kind of cry and she would kind of whine and she'd kind of lay on the couch. And so, you know, they, they knew something was wrong, but I think my mom didn't take it very seriously and was probably so overwhelmed with life and with her other kids. She at this time was pregnant with her ninth child. Even saying that just blows me away. So they probably waited way too long to take my sister to the doctor. And when they finally did, it was discovered that she had a tumor on her optic nerve. And they immediately took her into surgery to try to remove it. Um, I remember something about them having to put a shunt in the, like near her spine or something near her spinal cord. I don't know, like in her neck, it was something to like drain fluid. I mean, here's the thing. I was seven years old and I didn't know totally what was going on, but I was hearing conversations and I was hearing what was happening. And when my mom would talk to other people about it, but I wasn't really grasping at all. But Essentially, over the course of a couple weeks, she was in the hospital. She had multiple procedures. They weren't 100% successful. And she ended up going totally blind. Like, I think she was 100% blind um, within a couple weeks. And I remember my mom just being at the hospital nonstop. Um, My oldest sister was probably around 15 And she ended up taking on a lot of motherly responsibilities around the home and things. But remember, my dad had just quit his job. So it was not good. It was not good. And about, I think it was two months after my sister went blind, that my mom gave birth to my youngest brother, who was her ninth child. So all this time, we had no medical insurance when I think back on this, I seriously can't believe that any of this even happened. I was mostly oblivious to how horrible it was, but we had the most generous neighbors and friends. One in particular, he lived next door to us. He was our home teacher. I remember him coming over at least one time and he handed my mom an envelope and it had money in it cash or check of some kind. And my mom just cried. And then I, I didn't find this out at the time, but I found it out later that he ended up paying our entire hospital bill for my sister. He was just the most gen. I mean, I can't even believe somebody like that exists. And as a side note, um, within a couple of years of that, I don't know exactly how long it was, but This guy who was our neighbor, who was married and had three kids himself, he died in a car accident. And I remember that like being one of the most devastating things. It was so incredibly sad. But so back to this story, he pays for the entire hospital bill for my sister. My mom has this baby and there happened to be a an OBGYN in our ward at the time. We we lived in a pretty wealthy area for whatever reason. I We did not belong there for sure. And 
my mom had become really good friends with this OBGYN's wife. And I, I ended up finding out later as well that he did all of her prenatal OB care and delivery costs. He completely did it all for free. He did not charge her one penny. Another thing that I found out later is that while we were living in that house and we did for about a year to 18 months, we never paid a single mortgage payment. My mom told me that. My dad had some done some kind of shady business deal. He had lied about, you know, his income to even qualify for that home. They got a mortgage on it. I don't even know. I don't know how that worked, but he we were qualified for a home that he was not even remotely close to being able to afford. And he cheated the system to keep us there as long as possible before we were finally evicted or, you know, foreclosed on and and forced out of that house. In fact, even a moving company came and boxed up all of our stuff and and moved it for us. Um, And at the time I was like, wow, we must be really rich that we can pay a moving company to do all this. No, that's not how it works. When a bank is trying to foreclose on your home, there's something called giving cash for keys. And essentially they will either give you cash just to get you out of the house, or they will help pay expenses to help you move just to get you out of the house so that they can take the house and sell it, right? Because they aren't getting any money out of us paying the mortgage, Um, My mom later said we never paid a single payment while we lived there. So I remember in this house also that I turned eight while we lived there. My dad baptized me. The only thing I remember about my baptism is that later that night, I told my sister that I didn't feel any different after being baptized. And she told me that I was probably going to go to hell. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So it's so interesting There's so many things I found out later. Also, my mom like secretly stopped taking the pill so that she could get pregnant without telling my dad because she wanted more kids. So it's only when I look back on this that I realize how incredibly unhealthy and toxic their relationship was. So much deception and lack of trust and love. They were never on the same page. They didn't even love each other. I think that my mom kept wanting more kids to fill a hole that was there because she never felt loved by my dad. But it wasn't just that. I think there were multiple reasons, but let me tell you a little bit about my parents individually. So my mom was like super high energy, super high achieving, super social. Everyone loved my mom. She made friends everywhere we went. She was always put into the high callings in the church. She was almost always president of something, you know, the young women's, the primary, the Relief Society, like multiple, multiple times. I, you know, over and over again, everywhere we went, right? And she was very concerned about appearances. She wanted to appear to be totally put together, happy and in control of her life. But in reality, she was anything but in control, happy or put together. She took out her stress and frustration on us kids and my dad. She was never really a nurturing mom. She was kind of um, bossy and militant in a way. She was definitely a yeller. And, and in a way I, I get it because she had so many kids. She, she didn't have time to be calm and loving and relaxed with us. It was always job charts and organized days of everyone has a job and we need things to be in order for the house to run smoothly. And, you know, it was, it was definitely out of necessity, right? When you have that many kids, it kind of has to be like that. But it did feel kind of like 
you were a number, just one of the many, many kids, and you didn't really have a personal relationship with her. None of us did. I didn't ever feel like my mom knew me very personally. And I think for a lot of years, you know, I had a lot of resentment about that and resentment about, you know, not feeling like she was the kind of mom that every other person had. All my friends had wonderful moms, right? (laughs) You know, in my mind, there was this ideal mother image and my mom to me did not fit that. But it's interesting now because I have a lot more compassion for her now, knowing more about what she went through and just how hard it is to be a mom, number one, and how hard it would be to always be trying to figure out how you were going to pay for the next thing, you know, the bills, the food, the everything, right? So that had to be incredibly hard. My dad was the quiet one. He wasn't very social. He was super intellectual. He was a thinker. He had big aspirations and tried to start so many businesses. I don't even have a count, but I would probably say 20, 20 different businesses over my growing up years. That's a total guess, of course. But he always felt like the daily grind of a job and a boss was not for him. He always talked about being on the edge of a huge breakthrough. And according to him, we were always just around the corner from becoming millionaires. You know, he talked really big. And sometimes that got me really excited. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to have money any day. We're going to be rich and we're going to be able to have all the things we want. And he just talked this talk that was very like, you know, kind of inspirational, but not very rational, right? This kind of talk drove my mom crazy because all she ever wanted was just to have food on the table and like health insurance. I mean, my mom didn't expect to be a millionaire. She didn't care about that. But my dad was willing to risk everything for the big payout because it was coming any day. It was coming. And I just look back now and realize how irresponsible that was for, you know, for him in that circumstance. And I don't remember thinking that about him at the time. Right. Um, my dad was the fun one in the household. I remember him playing hide and seek with us or having newspaper wars. Do you guys, did you guys ever do that? Like either with magazines or newspapers where you would roll them up and basically have sword fights with them. My dad would do that with us. He would sit on the couch with me or I would sit on the couch with him and play and watch football. So he would, he would sit down and start watching a football game. And I, for, for whatever reason, I was super drawn to football and, I would ask him all about the rules and he would explain everything to me. And he wasn't super into sports in like, you know, playing them necessarily, but he loved to watch the Broncos play. And that's, that's all he, you know, that was really the only sport I remember him watching was the Broncos play football. And so that's what we did together. And I felt like I was the super cool one because I was born in Denver. So the Broncos, they were my team, right? My dad was also the one who would come to my room after I had gotten into trouble or after my mom had yelled at me or whatever. And he would always come in to talk to me and he did it in a loving way that made me feel like he cared. And, you know, it always turned into like some big long lecture because let's be honest, my dad was super boring. Like as a kid, I was just like, oh my gosh, I get, I don't know what you're talking about. It was always like this super long talk about life and I don't know. It just always felt like luxury, but 
at least he tried to spend one-on-one time with me, which was more than my mom ever did. And, and I, and I loved that. I, I think he was like trying to be the good cop when my mom was the bad cop. Right. And I always had this soft spot for my dad because I saw the way that my mom treated him and us, you know, like she yelled at him and berated him in front of us. Like, and, and he would just sit and take it. Like he rarely yelled back at her. He would try to like defend himself, but he very rarely yelled back at her. I remember a few times, but not that often. He always looked like the victim in these scenarios. And maybe that was a little bit of manipulation on his part, you know, um, looking back on it now that I see like why she was yelling at him and how irresponsible he was. I mean, I feel like he deserved that. He, he was a crappy provider. He really was. And so I always felt a little bit like, oh, my poor dad, my poor dad, my mom's so mean and she's always mad at him and he can never make her happy. And, you know, she's never, she's never happy, but now I understand why she was always mad at him. I mean, yeah, he was just so irresponsible and he wasn't very truthful with her a lot of times. Like that example I shared just a minute ago about how he told her, Hey, it's time for me to quit my job. And then when she pushed him on it, he basically admitted, oh yeah, I've already quit my job. In fact, there was another time. Um, let's see. It was like when I was very young, like less than three years old. Um, so I don't remember. And I only heard this story later, but my parents were trying to buy a home and they'd found a home and they put an offer on it and they were working on the loan. And one day the lender called my mom and he said, Hey, I'm sorry, but we can't qualify you for the loan because Um, I tried to confirm your husband's employment. And when I called the employer, they said that he no longer works there and that he hasn't for weeks. So (laughs) that's how my mom found out that my dad had been fired from his job. And not only did he not tell her, but he just, he kept pretending like he was going to work every day. And he actually had the audacity to try to buy a home during this time. So I can't even imagine the balls it takes to try to pull something like this over on my mom. I do not understand it. That's an example of his dishonesty again. And all this time, you know, he's a temple recommend holding priesthood holder. He thought he was completely worthy. I don't think that he ever thought he was doing anything wrong. I don't know why. It just feels like he was like so oblivious or something. I don't know. He didn't think he was doing anything dishonest. It's the weirdest thing to think about. And I've often thought about asking him about it or why he did it. But I think, you know, he'd probably either deny it or say that I've got the facts of the story wrong or, you know, he would make excuses or I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever know the whole story about some of that. But So in this last house where the movers came and packed us up and kicked us out (laughs) after we'd been evicted, we, we moved just across town. So we stayed in the same town in the same schools. I was eight years old. We went and we rented a home for several years. And that was eventually, I mean, that was where we stayed for the rest of my growing up years. Um, We did eventually buy that home, but I think it might've been like a seller finance kind of scenario because my parents' credit was completely shot. But anyways, needless to say, this was the final home um, that I lived in. And we were still pretty poor for a few years. Um, I still remember having free lunch at school. I remember at this time in this new house, my mom started babysitting like other people's kids to try to make money. She had, she ended up 
eventually having so many kids, like there were probably times where she would have like 20 kids at a time. Plus she had her own kids. She didn't have any sort of license or certificate that said she could do. I'm sure it was very illegal. I don't know. Maybe in those days it wasn't. This was, you know, the 80s. (laughs) I remember her literally leaving to go to the store while she had kids that she was babysitting and not thinking anything of it. I mean, so, so weird. So she started bringing in a little bit of money. All of these kids, you know, ended up being you know, playmates for me. And, and I did, I did help. I remember changing diapers of babies. I remember, you know, I remember loving, you know, playing with the little toddlers and, and, uh, I don't know. I remember having fun with these other kids, but I still like looking back, I think, oh my gosh, that was so irresponsible. So one of the memories I have from this time, I was, when I was in like fifth grade, my mom bought me some high top turquoise Converse shoes. Now, of course, they were not actual Converse brand. They were from Payless Shoes. Do you remember that store? <laughs> we never had name brand stuff. So this is totally normal. I mean, of course, I never would have had actual Converse, but they were cool. And Payless Shoes was not, right? <laughs> um, I loved the shoes when she got them for me. But the first day I wore them to school, a kid made a comment and just said, hey, cool shoes. And I... I thought he was being sarcastic, but I don't even know if he was. It's not like he was overly mean. If he was being sarcastic, it was very subtle, but he might have been totally serious. But all he said was, hey, cool shoes. I never wore those shoes again. (laughs) I had this complete aversion to drawing any attention to myself ever. Not in my family, not in school, not with my friends. I just wanted to blend in, not have anyone notice me. The fact that he noticed my shoes, even if he wasn't being sarcastic, was enough to embarrass me to never wear them again. Never. So when I was in sixth grade, I got my own dog. This was huge. I saved up my own money and it was, you know, this family in my neighborhood, in my ward, had had a dog that had puppies and they were selling these puppies for $50. And I begged and begged. And my parents said, if you can pay for it yourself, you can get one. And so I don't even know how I earned up this money, but I did. I must have done chores or whatever. I don't remember. But, um, you know, our home was constantly like a revolving door of cats and dogs. So it wasn't that big of a deal to have pets, multiple pets in our home. But this was my very own. Right. I was so excited. I named her Tootsie. I have no idea why I named her Tootsie. She was not the color of a Tootsie Roll. Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. She was kind of this reddish brown. I don't even know what kind of dog she was. But anyways, she was probably a mutt. I got her in December, like probably early December. I took care of her. I trained her. I slept with her. I did everything. And I don't remember my parents having any sort of involvement with this, with this whole dog thing at all. But sometime between December and February... Tootsie followed my brother and sister to school one morning and they left him out front of the school and and went into school. Right. And he wandered off. This was back in the days when no one kept their dogs on leashes. We lived in a small town. Maybe other people kept their dogs on leashes, but not us. (laughs) I think it was more normal then, but you know, I was a kid, so maybe I just don't know what was normal, but she wandered off because you know, 
my brother and sister left her there out in front of the school. And and we were within walking distance of the school, but we hadn't lived there or sorry, Tootsie hadn't lived with us for that long. And she got lost. She didn't know her way home. So when I discovered that my dog was gone, I was so devastated and worried. I just like bundled up because this was in the winter time. And I believe there was a snowstorm. That's the way I remember it. There was a snowstorm that day. I just, I went looking door to door, knocking on doors, asking everyone if they had seen my dog. I spent hours checking all the neighborhoods closest to the school. It was so dang cold and snowing. My parents didn't help me with this at all. I just walked. I don't remember them even caring at all. I was all on my own. I don't remember them having any part in trying to find my dog. I was completely traumatized. This was like a week before my birthday. And I remember that being just the worst birthday ever. This was when I turned 12. Okay. I turned 12. I went into Young Women's. They introduced me in Young Women's. My mom, of course, was the Young Women's president at this time. They made me come up front and like introduce myself and tell them things about me. And all I remember is that I told everyone how I had lost my best friend, Tootsie. And it was incredibly sad. This reminds me, like, I hated having to stand up in front of people. I told you, all I ever wanted to do was just blend in. I didn't want any attention on me whatsoever. I was so embarrassed to be put on the spot. I remember actually multiple times just freezing up in front of people. On my first day at a new school in second grade, they made me go up to the front of the class and tell about myself. Guess what I did? I stood up there silent and just put my head down. I did not utter one word. (laughs) My teacher, I think she asked me a couple questions and I either like nodded my head or shook my head, but I don't think one word came out of my mouth. So embarrassing. I also remember another time when I was in piano lessons, I was probably around 11 or 12 at this time too, but there was like, some special group class for some reason. And the teacher called on me in front of the whole group to answer a question. And I put my head down and started to cry. I don't know what the hell was wrong with me. I don't know why I did that. I just felt so embarrassed every time I was, you know, put on the spot or in front of people. I don't know why. Anyways. Okay. Back to Tootsie. I never found Tootsie. I remember I just cried for days. I was, ugh, it was terrible. My best friend at that time, she was a year younger than me. So she was in fifth grade. I was in sixth grade. In the fall, I went to junior high and she was still in elementary school. So I felt like I did not have a single friend in the world. My older sister, she was three years older than me. So she was in high school. This was the first time in my life that I was all alone at school. I didn't have a sibling and I felt like I didn't have any friends. I remember like one of the first days of school in the very beginning, I had to ride the bus I was very afraid to talk to anybody on the bus or to have anyone notice me. So I would get on the bus and like sit in the very front seat or the very closest seat and I would sit on the edge and not talk to anybody. And (laughs) I feel like I, I kept witnessing like really terrible bullying. Like I remember watching a group of boys pick up another boy and you know, when like in like going into the school, there would be like double doors And then there would be like a metal bar where both the doors met. Do you you know what I'm talking about? And they picked this boy up and they grabbed him by his legs and his arms and they rammed him into this post, like legs on either side of it and like racked him 
like so bad. And this boy, he was this total nerdy kid. He, I don't know, but it was terrifying. I remember being so afraid and so sad, so sad for that kid. And it was like all these, I mean, it was probably six to eight boys against this one kid. And I just remember seeing that and being like, okay, no one will ever see me. No one will ever notice me ever. I just keep my head down. Don't look at anybody in the eye. Don't talk to anyone. It was literally the worst, scariest time of my life. I had very few people or friends that I ever talked to. I felt completely inadequate in every way. I didn't know where I fit in or who I was. When I had a few friends, I always felt like I was the third wheel. Like they didn't really want me there. I was just not as cool as anyone else. Seriously, it's like so depressing to think about this time in my life. In eighth or ninth grade, sometime, I can't remember exactly. I just, I decided that no one would care if I died. I thought about it for days. I tried to figure out how I could die and not have to suffer. I was afraid of pain, uh, but I didn't want to exist. So that was my thought process is like, I need to figure out a way to disappear and not exist anymore, but without having to go through anything hard or painful. I didn't want any attention. It's, it wasn't like something where I wanted people to notice me. And that's why I wanted to kill myself or, you know, attempt it. I don't know. I just, I wanted love and acceptance, but I didn't want attention. And I honestly remember thinking that no one would notice if I died, that it, you know, I remember the thought going through my mind of like, how many days do you think would go by before my mom noticed? Oh, I'm so sad for that, you know, 13 or 14 year old me. I don't know. It's so sad. And at one time I wrote an actual suicide note and I folded it up and put it down in this pocket in my day planner. And then I planned to take a bottle of ibuprofen, like to just take the whole bottle. I thought that that would kill me easily. I thought that I would die, that I would just go to sleep and I wouldn't wake up. I, of course, you know, in my brain, that was, that was what was going to do it. But at the last minute I got scared and I decided not to, I, I don't know, something happened. I got distracted, whatever. I just moved on and I, I never kind of, I don't ever remember going back to that, but that suicide note stayed in my day planner for a long time. So my life took kind of a major turn starting on the last day of ninth grade. And this is kind of so weird because it doesn't seem like this one thing would change everything so significantly, but it did. One of my friends who was way too cool for me and always left me out. And, you know, I was totally a third wheel with her and her friends. But on the last day of ninth grade, she introduced me to one of her like, you know, semi friends. It was somebody that she knew. And I seriously think that she wanted to get me, get rid of me. That's why she's like, here, come meet this girl. She'll be a good friend for you. You know, (laughs) I honestly think she just wanted to get rid of me. Um, It's so funny to think about now, but this new friend, her name was Amy and she had a ton of friends. She was popular. She was pretty. And she actually made me feel like I wasn't a burden or I wasn't annoying. I think she actually liked me. It was like this light switch in my brain. 
and everything was different from then on. She literally just like invited me to come and be with her friends. I became a completely different person. When I was around her, I feel like I belonged. She made me feel like I belonged. And suddenly, like I said, it was like a light switch. I became super social. I became friends with all of her friends and I was no longer shy or reserved or trying to hide. I I actually became like the planner of this group, if that makes sense. Like I was the one who would get us all together. I would plan things and we would hang out almost every single night that entire summer after ninth grade. I don't know why or how that happens because it seemed like it was such an abrupt turnaround in my life that I I cannot explain it. But by the time I went to high school, I was on top of the world. I um, I started dating a boy in this group. He was my first boyfriend. Actually, the night before high school started, this boyfriend, he came to my door with a bunch of his friends and they're like, hey, come hang out with us. And they had this older friend that already had his driver's license and he was driving. And my parents said, no, it's Sunday night. It's the night before school starting. You can't go hang out with your friends. So I told him, hey, go and wait, go wait around the corner and I'll go and sneak out. (laughs) So here I am, I'm 15 years old. I sneak out of the house and I went with them. We drove around for a while. We went to a park, we hung out and then we came back home. Like we didn't do anything bad. He walked me to the door and kissed me for the first time. Oh, It was my first kiss. It was his first kiss. He was the cutest boy I had ever known. I was on cloud nine. Holy crap. I totally loved him. Oh, but within a month or two, he broke up with me. I didn't know why. He didn't exactly communicate very well with me and neither did I. We were super immature and stupid, but you know, we had all the same friend group and we still hung out a bunch. It was just kind of awkward And it was bad for me because I seriously still liked him so much. I did not get over him at all. Like, I don't think ever. I don't know if I ever got over him. Um, (laughs) I loved him. But this group of friends, it was a bunch of girls, a bunch of guys, um, maybe like 20 to 30 of us, you know, just depending on the time. There was some coming and going, but we constantly hung out. I was never home after that. I took every opportunity to be with friends and be away from the stress and contention That was always at home. Oh, I forgot to mention, I'm going to go back just a little bit. While I was in junior high, my mom actually went back to school and got her teaching certificate. She had previously gotten her degree in music. She was a music major. Uh, She played the cello. She played in an orchestra, all this stuff. She had to take a few classes, I think, and get like a teaching certificate. But essentially, she started teaching at school. She was an orchestra, um, a junior high orchestra teacher. And she was passionate about music. She played cello. I already said that. Um, (laughs) She was a phenomenal teacher. She quickly became well-known in the community. Now, I I should clarify, she did not teach at the school that I went to. Okay, she taught at a nearby school. She taught at several junior highs, and then she started teaching at one junior high and one high school. And this was the first time in our entire lives that I remember that we had like actual medical insurance. We could go to the doctor when we were sick um, because my mom had insurance through teaching, through her job. And I, just so you know, like my entire life, I spent coughing. 
like ask anyone who knew me as a kid. I coughed my entire lifetime. Like I had asthma. I had chronic, chronic bronchitis. And finally, here I was 15 years old, finally able to get an inhaler to get like actual cough medicine or an antibiotic when I got bronchitis and I could finally start getting better. I was also finally able to go to the dentist and the orthodontist. I mean, these are things that most kids think are totally normal, but this was 100% new to me. I had never done these things. So I got braces, um, all these things, right? So things definitely changed for our family because my mom had a consistent paycheck and was better able to financially support us. I mean, of course we were still poor. We had nine freaking kids and she was a teacher. Um, And my dad was doing something, but I don't know what. I never really knew what my dad was doing, whether it was like working for an actual company or starting his own company or whatever. It was always something. It was always changing. She also taught private cello lessons. And, you know, she was, I think she was making decent money. But teaching was everything to her. And she was really good at it. And I felt resentful because she had such close relationships with her students and not me, not any of her kids. She was like, she was always an achiever. She felt so much personal achievement in her teaching that she didn't get from motherhood, right? She didn't get the pats on the back. She didn't get the accolades. She didn't get all the achievement feelings that she wanted from motherhood. And I understand it now a little bit, but I still struggle with my feelings around this. She could always present like the best version of herself to the world and to her students, but we at home didn't get the best version of her. And she was really hard to live with. She was hard on us. So back to my friend group for a little bit. They were a really great group of friends. They were all LDS except one kid but he he was some, I don't know, Buddhist or something. I I have no, I think he was Hindu actually. Is that a religion? (laughs) He was from India and I think he was Hindu. Anyways, he was awesome. All of my friends were, and we were super close and we were kind of well known in high school as a really good, awesome, popular, good group of friends. I was always a decent student. I was smart, but I didn't care about school. I could pass all my classes without doing a single stitch of homework or studying. I did not care about my grades. I did not care about anything. I mean, my parents cared to a certain degree, but they didn't push me super hard. But like if I got A's and B's and maybe an occasional C, I I never got in trouble or anything. They didn't push me super hard, but I just coasted through. I think I ended up with like a 3.0 GPA. I, it just wasn't that important to me. In my junior and senior year of high school, I probably sloughed more than I went. And some of you might not know what sloughing is. I don't know. Maybe that that was just a Utah, you know, 90s word, but that just meant skipping school. So I loved the social part of school. So I would show up and maybe go to my first class. And then I would find a friend who wanted to skip class and you know, we would go to the park or we would go get some food somewhere. We would just drive around. Like I never, we never got caught by the school or my parents. Um, I actually can't believe that I graduated with how many times I slept school. Me and, you know, I would do anything to not have to go to class. Um, most of my friends were more disciplined 
than I was and they were worried about getting into trouble. So I didn't always hang out with the same friends. It's like I would get one or two people to go with me this day and then different people the next day and then different people the next day because no one was willing to slough as much as I was. <laughs> um, and a lot of times it was the boys that w- that would slough with me. You know, um, my my friends that were girls were a lot more like studious and they cared about their grades and Um, I had that one friend, Amy, she like, she wanted to go to BYU. She was like, she took a whole bunch of AP classes. Like I never did that. I just took the standard classes. I never tried to do anything special. I did not care. I never had boys that were interested in me. I had lots of friend boys and I had lots of crushes on boys, but no one ever liked me, like, liked me, liked me. Right. I hated that. I was always in the friend zone with boys. They would tell me about their crushes on other girls and their girl problems. And I was the one who they went to and who listened to them. It sucked, but I still had fun. On weekends, we would go out and then go check in at home, like at my curfew, but immediately sneak out and leave again (laughs) and come home in the morning. And my parents never knew. My parents were, I don't know if they were just like super naive or if they just didn't care. I felt like I was a huge rebel for doing those things, but I never really did anything bad. I never did drugs. I never drank. I never got into trouble with boys, even though I really wanted to. <laughs> I would have done anything to get a boy to notice me. I I hardly went to any boys' choice dances. Like I just, I didn't get asked out. That just wasn't part of my life. I had, my friends were all beautiful and I was not. I was just plain. I was, I was cute. It's not like I was ugly, but I was never the beautiful one, Right. And they would all get asked to dances and not me. And that sucked. My sophomore year, I did get asked to prom. Um, My junior year, I did not get asked to a single boys choice dance. Not one. Um, My senior year, I actually ended up going to all the boys choice dances. um, Because, you know, they, they would have boys choice and girls choice. I don't know if they do that anymore. I think now it's just like anybody can ask anybody. I don't know if that's true. but So I went to a lot of the dances my senior year for some weird reason. Um, never with anyone who was, you know, more than a friend. It was just, you know, friends asking me. There was one time in my senior year that we decided to go camping. And this was one of those times where we snuck out. You know, we went home, we checked in with our parents, and then and then we snuck out. And probably, there was probably seven or eight of us, and we snuck out and went up the canyon. And I think there was only one other girl besides me, and then the rest of them were boys. I can't remember for sure. But in the night, one of the boys that was laying next to me in the tent, we set up a tent and everything, he just started kissing me (laughs) and I woke up and it startled me. I was not expecting that. He had never, ever, ever acted like he liked me. Um, nothing. We were just friends, but I liked it. (laughs) So I kissed him back and we made out for, I don't know, 10 minutes or something. It never went any farther than just kissing. I swear I was still half asleep. Actually, it was, it was kind of, he was known as being a scammer. And that's the word we use. That's probably a funny word too. I don't know if anybody knows what that means, but that's just like a boy who would make out with lots of girls and never really have a girlfriend. He was a scammer. So I knew that it was just a make out, even though I would have loved it if he actually liked me, but he didn't. Surprise, surprise. Um, There was another time when (laughs) I had this friend, his dad like worked, I don't know, in construction or something. And he had some, he had like this big flatbed truck And one night, me and my friends in the middle of the summer, we parked in like a, I don't know, a Smith's parking lot 
and we slept on that flatbed. We all brought pillows and blankets and we just like spread out on the flatbed truck. So weird. Like this is the kind of stuff we did. It's like we felt like we were rebels because, you know, our parents didn't know that we were doing that. And it was kind of like, oh, this is so, you know, we, we could get in trouble for this. But we never did anything seriously bad. Right. So let's see. I was going to go back. Oh, oh, oh. Yes, I I was just looking at my notes and realized, okay, I have to go back to a memory that I had from that first summer between junior high and high school when I was 15. One night we were all hanging out at my friend Amy's house and my dad called and said he was coming to pick me up immediately. And I did not know why. And I was mad. He didn't give an explanation. I was like, no, dad, no. He's like, yep, I'm coming right now. So he picked me up. I got in the car all huffy and mad. And I was like, why do I have to go home? Like all snotty, right? And he yelled, he said, this is what he said, because when boys and girls start hanging out, they start fucking around. I was shook. (laughs) My dad had never said that word. Never. I had never heard him be that mad in my entire life. He was the quiet one. Remember, he almost never yelled. And he almost never swore. And when he did swear, it was just like, damn, and hell, right? When he got really mad, he would say, damn it. But he said the actual F word. (laughs) And I was so stunned. I just sat quietly the rest of the way home. I didn't know why he said that or why he was mad until later I learned that he had just learned that my sister, who was 18 and graduated from high school by this time, was having sex with her boyfriend. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about that, but apparently my dad had just found that out and he was pissed. So anyways, okay, back to my senior year. I got the chance to sign up for this three-week church history tour that my school seminary would put on, right? And if I graduated from seminary, you had to graduate from seminary to do this, but you could go on this church history tour. I had a job. As soon as I turned 16, I got a job. So I had a job. I saved all my own money so I could go because, of course, my parents couldn't afford it. I literally never asked my parents for money. As soon as I turned 16, I got a job and I worked as much as I could. My first job was at Subway. And that only lasted like over a summer. It was a few months because it was a little bit further away from home. But once school started, I quit there and I went and worked at Hoagie Yogi, another sandwich shop. Do you guys remember Hoagie Yogi? If you lived in Utah, I think they were only a Utah thing. But Hoagie Yogi, they had hoagie sandwiches and frozen yogurt, and they were so good. I freaking love them. They were brand new. It was the very first Hoagie Yogi in our town, and I went and worked there. So back to, okay, so I worked as much as I could. I loved having my own money and having that freedom, having my driver's license. Oh my gosh, it changed my life. I drove the family custom van. (laughs) My mom had gotten her own car by this time, and the van was super old and run down, but I was happy to have anything to drive. Plus my friends loved it too, because we could pack a lot of people into it. (laughs) So I was the dork who drove the family custom van. Do you remember the old, I think they were Chevy or, or not Ford or GMC. I don't know. They had like curtains in the windows and they had like captain's chairs. And then anyways, you could fit like 10 people in those, of course, because my family, hi, we had nine kids. So anyways, I saved tons of money. And, the, and I went on this church history tour. It was like right after high school. Um, it was three weeks and it was by bus. We rode on a bus. 
There was actually we had two buses. Um, I think there was about a hundred of us kids that went. And then, you know, of course they had chaperones and, and whatever else. Um, they organized us into families. We had a dad of the family, which was just one of the guys, but he had the priesthood. So it was cool. My dad <laughs> was actually that boy that I had made out with uh, camping a few months ago. <laughs> so that was a weird coincidence, but I still was really good friends with him actually. And yeah, I loved him anyways. So there was probably like 10 kids to a family and we had, I think one chaperone, maybe two. Anyways, we had a blast. We went to every church history site you can think of, you know, Kirtland, Nauvoo, upstate New York, Sacred Grove, Adam on Diamond, Liberty Jail, Carthage Jail, the Johnson Farm, several of Joseph Smith's homes, including his birthplace in Vermont. Um, anyways, we also went like a couple other non-church related places. Like we went to Niagara Falls. We went, we spent one day in New York City and we went and saw a Broadway musical. We saw Guys and Dolls. Those are probably the only like non-church related places, things we did. But anyways, we did all that stuff. Um, it was very cool. Like it, this trip, I felt like at the time, changed my life. It strengthened my testimony of Joseph Smith significantly. I, of course, only learned the good stuff, right? They clearly didn't teach us any of the bad stuff about church history. But I would be interested to go back now and do that trip again with what I know now. But anyways, I bonded so closely with, you know, my quote unquote family. Um, several of my closest friends went with me on this trip, but not all of them. We had the time of our lives. We like every morning we had to, you know, we wake up and get on the bus and we would sing songs and we prayed together and we read the entire Book of Mormon during that three weeks. It was like a challenge given to us to like read it on our own. And so like we'd have quiet time every day and we'd read while we're riding on the bus or whatever. We learned, you know, just all the things. And I remember um, in particular going to Carthage jail and standing in the room where Joseph Smith had been and, you know, hearing the story about the gunshots and the jumping out the window and all this stuff. And we sang this song. I don't know if any of you guys will know this song. I don't know where it came from or why it was, I don't know, but it was called In This Very Room. And it, it's not a hymn, but it was somewhat of a well-known kind of churchy song. I don't know who wrote it. I should go look into that. Anyways, it was called In This Very Room. And we also learned like the sign language to it. And we would sing this song. Oh my gosh, I'm like getting the chills singing or talking about this because this experience was like, it's ingrained in me that it was like the spirit was so strong and this song talks about in this very room, you know, there's, there's quite enough love for all of us. And it's so interesting to think about this with the knowledge that I have now, because the song, it's like when you feel the spirit, you are made to believe that that feeling is telling you that the church is true. When in reality, that feeling came because I was so closely bonded with all the people around me. We were talking about love and connection. And I was feeling that really strongly. And it had nothing to do with what happened in that room or whether Joseph Smith was a prophet or whether it was true. But at that time, all of those feelings that I had 
I mean, I would just cry feeling the spirit so strongly. All of those feelings told me that the church was true, right? After we got back from the trip, I was determined to stay as spiritual as I felt at that time. I kept reading the Book of Mormon. I read about 30 minutes every night. I could finish the Book of Mormon. I timed it. I figured out that if I read 30 minutes every night, I could finish the Book of Mormon about every 90 days and then just start it over. So I probably read cover to cover the Book of Mormon six to eight times between that time frame between then and when I left on my mission about two years later, 18, 19, 20, 21. I don't know. It was about three years later, almost three years later. Anyways, but before my mission and shortly after this church history tour, I started dating a kid from high school. Like we had been friends in high school, but I didn't know him super well. And I had never really had a crush on him or anything, but we hung out a couple times and I started like, Hey, I kind of like this kid, you know? Well, we quickly kind of got pretty serious. We we totally fell in love with each other. We spent every day together. We got super serious. We talked about marriage. We planned out our lives completely. I went on several trips with his family. I went to a Utes football playoff game, bowl game, something like this. Um, I don't even know what bowl game it was, but I think it was in California or Las Vegas. Um, I can't remember, but that was uh, where my love of the Utes started. We also went to Lake Powell. We went to Disneyland. Like I, I did all these trips with his family. We literally planned out our entire lives. Um, the plan was that he was going to go on his mission in September. I was going to go on my mission, you know, because back then boys went at 19 and girls went at 21. Right. And I was a little bit older than him. I was like eight months older than him or something. So I was going to leave on my mission like in February of, or March of the same year that he was going to come home, right? And then my mission would be 18 months and his would be two years. So it worked out that like he would come home and then I would be on my mission for like almost a year, like 10 months or something after he got home from his mission. They would overlap a bit. But anyways, that was just like the way our birthdays felt. Like we totally planned it out. And then we would get married when I got home from my mission. <laughs> That was the plan. So we dated about a year and then he went on his mission. I tried to be so supportive and happy, but I was devastated. I felt so abandoned. I, I don't think I ate food for like a week. I was sick. I was, I just felt like this absolute pit in my stomach. I could not stand to eat anything. I couldn't talk about it. I just like, I was so depressed. I was traumatized by the whole experience because as you know, the girlfriend, you're supposed to be like happy for them and excited for them and supportive of them. And you're not supposed to tell them how devastated you are because that will make them not want to go. And you know, it's like my job was to get him out on his mission. So it was so incredibly hard. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. But a couple weeks after he left, me and my best friend went up to college together. We moved out of our parents' homes. We moved into an apartment off campus. And that helped me get my mind off my missionary significantly. I swore I was going to wait for him, but, you know, I was going to have fun while he was gone. And so <laughs> before I even sent him off at the airport, okay, this was back in the days when like you went to the airport after the MTC. So like he was going foreign, he was speaking Spanish. And so, 
know, he was in the MTC for, I don't know, two months or something. And then when he went to the airport, everybody would meet him at the airport and see him off again. So it was like another giant goodbye, right? Which was terrible. But before I even sent him off at the airport, I had already kissed another guy. (laughs) Um, I had some fun that year. (laughs) I probably just really like needed to have love and attention from a boy. It was terrible to have him leave and I don't know. It just like in college, you get more opportunities to do that. So probably about six months after he left, I met a new guy. (laughs) Uh, We worked at the same place. He was kind of my boss, but not really. He was just like in a superior position to me, but probably not like my direct boss. But anyways, we probably had been working together a couple months before he got up the guts to ask me out. And after our first date, I'm pretty sure that we spent every single day together after that. Um, I still wrote my missionary and I kind of tried to play both sides because it was like, well, in case one of them doesn't work out, you know, I really like this guy and I want somebody to be with. But I still kind of in the back of my mind thought I'm still going to marry my missionary. Right. And I still loved my my missionary. But my new boyfriend, he was a return missionary. You know, he was Mormon. He'd already been on his mission, but he was kind of inactive. And I could tell that he wasn't as dedicated to the gospel as my missionary. And my missionary had come from a super strong LDS family. And my my current boyfriend that I started dating, his parents were divorced and both of them were inactive. And he had kind of gone inactive after his mission. And so that really was probably kind of like my main hang up of why I didn't totally write off my missionary because I was like, well, I'm probably not going to marry this guy because he's not super Mormon and probably won't be a faithful priesthood holder. Like, I don't know. I was just dumb. Right. So I kind of like hung on to my missionary for just in case kind of a thing. So we dated this new current boyfriend. We dated for about a year and then I abandoned him, put him exactly through what I went through and I went on my mission, right? The shoe is now on the other foot and I knew how bad it felt to get left. But I already, like I had always kind of felt like I was going to go on a mission and I didn't want to change that. And he was, he tried to be as supportive as he could, but I know it broke his heart and it was really terrible for him, just like it had been for me when my missionary left. So I tried to really love my mission. I think I, you know, I felt like I loved my mission, but looking back on it, I think I'm more honest about how I actually felt. And it was like so painfully hard. And I hated like constantly feeling guilty for anything I did that wasn't 100%, you know, for the church or even like I felt guilt for having bad feelings about like I wanted to sleep in. I didn't want to wake up early and study and I didn't, you know, I didn't like that investigator. He was kind of a jerk and I don't know, I just I put so much pressure on myself to be a perfect missionary. I was constantly striving and it was exhausting. And I felt so much guilt if I didn't give it 100% every minute of my mission. And I've even gone back and like read my mission journal and it's really sad. It's really pathetic because it's me constantly trying to be happy and saying that if I just keep working hard and praying hard and just keep being worthy of the spirit, then we'll be blessed and we'll have success. And I mean, I'm essentially just like brainwashing myself through my entire mission. Like that's how my journal sounds. And it's sad and depressing to read. 
But after I'd been out on my mission about four months, I don't know what switched in me, but I was like, I'm sick of this shit and I just want to go home. And I thought, hey, I could, I could be home and I could be married right now. And that would be so much easier. It was like, I wanted to take the easy route if I'm being totally honest with myself, right? I love my boyfriend. I just want my life back. I want my freedom back. Like on your mission, I couldn't even drive a car, which I'm sorry, but there's something about, you know, being able to drive and go wherever the hell you want to go. And I just felt, I felt completely trapped. So I think at the time I tried to make it like, oh, you know, the spirit's telling me that I need to go home. (laughs) I have this feeling that I, that I should be marrying my boyfriend, you know, but the honest truth was that I just wanted to go home. And I thought that getting married would solve all my problems. Isn't that so pathetic? Um, at that time, this was in 1997, 1997, this was not a time where it was common for people to come home from their missions. Like I didn't know anybody that had come home early from their mission. So this was bizarre. I, this was, this was not normal and I knew it and I don't know. I had like molded over in my mind for a while. I'd had like a really one really hard experience on my mission. I think I told about it a little bit about it in another episode where I had this golden family that suddenly like read some anti-Mormon stuff and they didn't they didn't want anything to do with the church after that. So I think that might have been kind of my breaking point of like, I give up. I'm quitting. I hate this. And so I was, um, I had like my regular meeting with my mission president. You know, I think, I think we would have an interview like once a month. I don't know. I can't remember for sure, but I met with him and I said, Hey, I'm just struggling. I'm really thinking about my boyfriend back at home. I'm thinking, man, I should have gotten married. And, you know, I kind of told him like how I was feeling. And he's like, well, if you want to get married, um, that's what the Lord, you know, prefers that you do. And so, you know, you could go home right now and get married and you would not be dishonorable in leaving your mission early. And I was like, what are you serious? You know, like, holy crap, like that blew my mind. I did not expect him to say that to me. And he said, I'll have a plane ticket for you tomorrow. And I was just blown away. And that was scary because I thought, oh, shit, I don't even know if my boyfriend back home still wants to marry me. I don't even know if. You know, well, I knew my parents would be mad because that was like the first time in my life that my parents had been actually like proud of me. And um, my mom had put a bunch of money into me going on my mission. And it was just, yeah, it, it was tricky. And so I, my mission president told me to call home and talk to my parents. And, and I did. And they were like, oh, no, this is not happening. You, you are not coming home. This is a really bad idea. And I really think you need to pray about it more and we're going to pray about it more. And then let's talk tomorrow. So the next day, my dad calls back and he says, "Um, hey, I, you know, I prayed about it. I went to the temple and the spirit told me that you should not come home. And I was like, shit. I mean, up until this point, like my dad was my priesthood leader. He was the authority. He was the one that God spoke through to me, right? Like that was my understanding. Not that he maybe said that specifically, but 
that's how I felt about it. And so I had been the day before so excited and exhilarated thinking my mission president is going to let me go home and there are no consequences for going home. Like I won't be shamed. I won't be in trouble for going home. And now here I am going, oh shit, my dad told me that, you know, the spirit told him that I shouldn't come home. So I hated that. I went back to my mission president and I told him what my dad had said to me. And my mission president said to me, uh, this isn't your dad's life. It's yours. And you have the right to receive revelation for your own life. Boom. Mind blown. It was honestly the first time in my life that I was like, oh, really? God will like talk to me? Not through my priesthood leader? Like, that's so weird. And it was like, honestly, the first time in my life where I just did exactly what I wanted to do and I didn't care what anyone else thought. So I called my dad back and I said, sorry, I'm still coming home. (laughs) And I think he was very disappointed, but they were as supportive as they could be. Both my parents were really disappointed in that decision. But I think that like given the circumstances, they were really as supportive as they could be. Um, I have to give them like some credit for how well they supported me, despite how I knew they felt about the situation. And so I came home July 31st. My boyfriend already had a ring. He asked me to marry him the next day. Um, And I didn't even mention how like I had called him on my mission and said, hey, I want to come home and get married. (laughs) Do you still want to marry me? And he's like, Uh, yeah, I think so. (laughs) I think he was a little bit panicked. And I think he was worried that like I was making a rash decision, like I was doing something impulsive and that I would regret it later. So he's like, let's think about it for a couple days, you know, because he's a logical thinker and um, not as impulsive as I am. But anyways, um, so we got engaged the next day and then we were married 35 days later. So We were married the first week of September and my missionary came home seven days after we got married. So the timing of it all was really insane, really, really insane. And I felt really guilty about doing that to my missionary. Like I wasn't honest with him. I didn't ever talk to him. I I never explained any of the situation. He didn't really see it coming. Although he knew that I was dating, he did not see that coming. I mean, he, he thought I was on a mission, you know? So that was really hard. And for a long time, I kind of carried around some, some guilt about that because he didn't deserve that. Like I wanted him to be happy, but also at the same time, like marrying my husband was the only thing I ever did that I had literally no regrets about. Like I did it 100% kind of selfishly. Like I didn't know if it's what God wanted, but I didn't care. I, I literally like I had my worries about, you know, whether he was a strong enough priesthood holder and whether he was going to stay faithful in the church and stuff. But I was like, fuck it. I don't even care. Like I kind of prayed about it, but I also was like, I don't really want to know what God thinks because this is just what I want to do. I honestly remember having that thought. We got married in the temple, so that was good enough, right? (laughs) But it's the decision that I just, you know, literally am so glad I made, even though 
everyone around me was uh, worried, worried. Nobody said that I shouldn't do it, but they were definitely like, um, are you sure? You know, so we're going on 26 years now. And the only thing I do regret is, you know, how I went about things, being shitty to my missionary. And it was probably a huge slap in the face to him. And he was a good guy and he never treated me bad. I always felt guilty about that. But I've been happy in my marriage and never regretted coming home early from my mission or anything. So I don't necessarily believe in like destiny or the idea that there's one person for everyone or even that like, you know, like the um, the Saturday's warrior idea of like our families being uh, created or, you know, in the preexistence that that we knew who we were going to marry and all that stuff. Like, I'm not sure how I feel about that now. I don't think I believe in that. But um, it's definitely something that that I've thought about a lot. So so I've had a good life. And, and that's just up to the point of getting married at 21 and a half years old. I'm going to end the podcast here because it's definitely been long enough. I'm going to do another episode about my life after marriage and, you know, kids and all of my service in the church. I really didn't talk too much about Um, the church and the gospel as it like how it affected my life growing up. But that's because it was just kind of always in the background. I mean, I I wouldn't even say background. It was just so much integrated into our lives that like it didn't really feel like it was anything that significant. I mean, we always had family prayer and we did family scripture study and we memorized scriptures and I did all the young women's things. I passed off all of my goals and got my young women medallion and I graduated seminary and I did all the things that I was supposed to do. And I, I genuinely always just, it was just there. It wasn't, I didn't have like super significant spiritual experiences. Um, I did have answers to my prayers where like I prayed for something and I felt like I got an answer. And so I never really questioned the church. It just wasn't like a big deal on my mind. It was just like kind of a matter of fact of my life. But the church does play a lot bigger role like later in my life in terms of like raising my kids and, you know, the the callings that I served in and and stuff like that. But like as a kid, it was just life. It was just regular life. Everybody else was Mormon around me. The gospel just worked for me and my family. Like my family was not perfect by any means, but nobody's is right. Um, I had like things about my family that I didn't like and that I was embarrassed about. I was embarrassed that I had nine kids in my family. I was always embarrassed to tell people that, but I mean, my siblings are like my best friends. Um, most of them, um, (laughs) my parents eventually did divorce after, after I was married and even after I had my first child. So my relationship with my parents has always been a little complicated. Like I'm sure many people's relationships with their parents are complicated. And so that's always something I'm, I'm still working at, but but yeah, that's that's me. That's my life story up to that point. And uh, I will tell you the rest of the story next time. Let me know if you have any specific questions or if you want me to go into anything more in particular. It's been really fun to kind of like think about this and plan it out. And it's also like really vulnerable sharing all this stuff with you today. So hopefully you feel like you've gotten to know me a little bit more. Hopefully I don't have, you know, a vulnerability hangover after this and panic and freak out and decide not to um, post it (laughs) because, you know, sometimes that happens where I feel that way. Um, Because this is like 
a, a vulnerable space to be in to kind of share so much about yourself, especially when I'm not sharing exactly who I am. I'm still going by my temple name, Ada. And that's a whole nother tricky thing, you know, where like, I just worry. There's just stupid stuff that I worry about. And so I still feel like I have to stay. Um, I have to stay unknown, um, even though I don't really mind if people figure out who I am. It's not like that really bugs me. It's just kind of I don't know. I'm just not I'm just not ready to be 100 percent like show my face and say who I really am. I don't know why I'm just being dumb. But anyways, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to share. If you guys are liking the podcast, please subscribe. Please um, leave a review. Send a donation if you feel so inclined. I always appreciate that. You could buy me one coffee a month. It would be awesome. I would love it. Um, You can set up a a continuing donation. Um, You can go to dissonantdaughters.org. You can also go to um, Mormon Discussions Podcast. Uh, and donate there. You can you can donate at either place, but um, I appreciate it. You can also go on YouTube and donate. I, I just appreciate any any support and love that you can throw my way. I love it and appreciate it. So hang in there, everybody. Life is a journey. It is, you know, up and down and all over the place. And um, I didn't talk, I didn't tell you guys too much more about my sister, my handicapped sister that went blind. Maybe next time I'll go into some more details about that um, and tell you the rest of that story because I kind of got sidetracked and didn't really think to back up and and finish that story. So I will try to kind of go back and finish that story as well um, because that's a whole, that's a whole thing in and of itself as well. So Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate it and have a great day. Love you. Bye. Whoa.